0: Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Duiwert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. So I'm pleased to be joined today by Mike Turner, CEO of Man Solutions. Mike, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, Peter. So you've looked at trend as an allocator and a portfolio manager from your fund-to-fund days. And I'm curious if you think of trend as alpha or beta or maybe some element of both.
1: So I think it's, it's a lot more nuanced than thinking about alpha or beta. And there's always a recurring thought I've had for many years around what is alpha in hedge funds. It's not like a long-only fund you can go do a regression and calculate the excess return. Because sometimes you don't have that element of a benchmark. This so alpha is really about the additional source of value. That is hard to find, I think is the simple way to put it. So when I look at trend, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the cheaper allocations, the more beta ish like allocation, they are largely what you'd been able to buy back in 2001 at right. a different price. It's actually really easy to go build those models in an Excel spreadsheet to implement them. But the real core question is is what do you need to be successful? And to be successful you need many hidden skills around research, execution, data management, and how to be do that successfully is a real, real skill. And I believe that's a core source of alpha. So for the, the cheaper end of the product, the more vanilla end of the trend spectrum, you have this slightly bizarre combination of very, you know, relatively simple models combined with some highly Technical skills, which are kind of a bit more alpha like hence the new one to be there, and then when you move into the more alternative market space or the more advanced models, then you know that's a different skill which brings you know how to find those markets, how to execute in them, the mechanics of how they work that's a real real alpha skill, so the way I think about it is it's it's more like a continuum um it's hard to do it's it's hard to do successfully. It's hard to do at scale. So, those combinations, it's, it's a, not beta, but some elements are a bit more beta like, but there's definite alpha in being able to do this well at scale on a consistent basis.
0: And so, you've seen a lot of different managers over the years. What should investors look for in a trend manager and what makes a
1: good manager? I actually had four when I thought about answering this, and I've come up with a fifth one this morning, which I think is really important. And um, four areas, I'll come on to, I'll come on to fifth later, is, um, you know, research, platform, execution, transparency. And if it's the start of the research, it is incredibly easy to go build any quant system in Excel on your desktop. And I can guarantee within a space of a few minutes, you will have found something which makes money in every single market environment going. The point is, we all know that's an example of something being heavily overfitted, it's fitted to the data as opposed to what you're thinking about what's going to make money going forward. So, that research process, when you've got lots of data, lots of researchers, lots of signals you could go look at, is tremendously important. And the core thing you're trying to prevent is making sure you're not just overfitting to the data, as in, you know, you're picking up things which are going to make money just because you've tweaked a model somewhere to pick out a dip in the market. It's really, really important. And one of the fundamental things I see when I've been meeting managers is that you can very quickly tell those who have a research process versus those who have really just gone and threw some data at a wall and found something that actually works. Important point there is that you are not looking for something that's worked in history. You are looking for something that's going to work on an ongoing forward-looking basis. So how you organize your research process how you handle data, how you sign off models, how you test them, how you evaluate them going forward. That's actually one of the most important things to look at. The second area is platform. Um, you know, especially these days, again I keep mentioning data, lots of data, lots of, you know, ways you can process it. That needs to be organized. It needs to be repeatable. Um the best shops, you know, whatever language you're using, Python's the one everyone seems to use these days. It needs to be organized. It's got to be scalable. It's got to be robust because there's just no way you can, A, do the research, but more importantly, once you've got that research done, implement it. And then the the final one I think is often overlooked is execution. Um, A lot of researchers, when they're starting out, forget that ultimately when you generate a signal or a trade, you're going to interact with the market. And that's a real frictional cost to consider. And being able to execute efficiently, being able to hide your order flow from the markets, being able to make sure the markets aren't able to see what you're doing and understand what you're doing, it's a thing that I think some people often overlook. And and if there's one area I'm absolutely paranoid about, it's actually execution because it's just a way, and it's the way I've actually seen even some of the very best funds have periods of difficulty because their execution's just been incredibly weak for some whatever reason. People see what they're doing, how they're doing it, and it gets taken advantage of. So execution's really important. It's, it's just something that if you don't get that right, there is no way you can actually trade or compete with the very best in the markets. And it's an area I've seen tremendous growth in over the past 20 years I've been involved in this space. And then the final one I listed was evolution. Um, if I look the period of how the period I've been involved in the markets, starting you know two thousand and one where you executed that everything was done over the phone, it has now moved to over time. Okay, you started to do more electronically. You started to do more, um, you know, using you know, you know more direct connection to the banks. It's just been and that's one example of how things have had to evolve we've seen the evolution of alternative markets we've seen the evolution of data platforms that if you think you can sit on your you know your your laurels you can run with what you were using back in 2001 and or when i started and it's still going to be successful you can't you need to evolve you need to constantly evolve and that needs to be part of the mindset and that's something i see in the best managers and the final one i threw in this morning was transparency and um, there's often a, a mantra that it's a quant manager, so therefore we're going to be secretive. We're not going to okay. tell you anything. No. There's, in fact, an awful lot you can tell someone without telling anything about your models. And I think it's important you do that because, or managers prefer to do that, is that it just helps you understand how they're going to perform, when they're going to perform. Are they prepared to build a sense of partnership with you? And the reason I think it's really important, because I think we may come on to later on, is that when times are tough, how are they going to work with you? Yeah, exactly. And that's it.
0: So there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I might jump into two things. One is the overfitting kind of aspect of things. It's easy to say you don't want something to be overfitted. It's a lot harder for an investor to tell that it's being overfitted. Like, how, how did, what are the red flags if, if any, that that can kind of jump out at you when you're evaluating a manager?
1: It's about, and I think when you're evaluating, it's, a, it's about asking. I like to talk through examples, actually, right. is the best way. Um, I had one example of a manager come in and said, if they trade on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the slippage is better than trading Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. This is a true story, by the way. And I, I just challenged him. I think is about 15 minutes of trying to get to why he thought that was right, what was going on. And if all you can refer to, oh, that's what the data says, I think that's a weak hypothesis. So there's definitely something around, is there a hypothesis? Can you explain that hypothesis? Can you articulate why, what's going on? And that's why I often see, now sometimes it is hard to give a very precise reason, that's what's happened. But it's the people who just go, oh, that's what the data says. Yeah, exactly. That's one. The other big red flag, and it's an even simpler one, is if someone just says, you should give me some money, look at my back test. Mm. If that's all they can point to, then, you know, it needs to be more than that. And yeah. I don't think that's.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. One chart isn't all that interesting. I, think that. I do think the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday trading strategy would be interesting from a work from home perspective. But beyond that, <laughs> I'm not sure there's going to be anything in it. The other thing that jumps out at me at your list is all of it seems to suggest big is better. Is there no such thing as a niche trend manager in that universe? Is it easier to be to approach bigger because there's economies of scale?
1: I think over time, I've noticed there's been a move to the bigger managers. Um, when I start in the space, I've joined a company of 20 people, um, admittedly with a very good pedigree. I've seen other friends and colleagues, startup, smaller managers. But it's, it's interesting they've all got to a point where they've just struggled. They can't get the scale of assets. They can't get to... And, and these are very, very smart people, by the way. The are um, people I respect a lot. So I do think there's been a move to, you know, to size. And if I think around why that could be the case, is that you know the, inf- the, imp- the investment in infrastructure you need around trading, around data, around data management. Uh, the overall competitiveness of the, the the entire markets, I think, has increased over time. Um, the fact that you can't just pick up a phone and get a good fill or expect to get the best fills in FX, you need to have a really powerful infrastructure there an execution. So it does seem to lend itself more to bigger being better. doesn't mean to say that you can't start small. It's just going to be a lot, a lot harder than it was 20, 25 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think that's even true with liquidity today. That's probably yeah. the biggest story in 2022. The second half is lack of liquidity in all kinds of markets and how you can create liquidity it seems to make a big difference. So shifting a bit, um, in terms of asset classes, we've seen some you know, asset class specific, like commodity-only trend managers. We've seen multi-asset managers. You have a view
1: so over my career, I've seen very few single sector managers actually succeed. I'm aware of a couple in commodities; mm-hmm. um, a couple of names spring to mind there. But broadly, I don't see much utility in single sector um, in single sector trend funds. And now, there's a there's possible reason for that because one of the things about trend is that a lot of the signals are incredibly weak. You know, they do have some predictive power, possibly, but actually the the predictive power of a single trend signal is very, very poor indeed. But here is the secret. If you put all those together, lots of them together, different speeds, different sectors, possibly different types of trend, you actually get this really powerful diversification effect. So your very weak signals you know, across a hundred odd markets, across multiple time frames, all of a sudden you get a strategy which is actually quite powerful. So that's that's one reason. And there's a second reason as well where I think is it's difficult to do single sector is that there are have often been very, very prolonged periods where some sectors just don't do anything. And then all of a sudden up they pop. Um copper i think 2003 2000 is one of the classic ones for years and years and years no one made a money trading anything out of base metals all of a sudden i think huge demand from china popped up and all of a sudden you're making a lot of money there so having that degree of diversification means that wherever you go no matter what's markets going to going what's going on in markets there's a chance you have an opportunity to make returns that you won't know where that's going to happen or when it's going to happen so being diversified for those two reasons i think is important and as i said i've seen only maybe a couple of managers really really succeed in trading single sectors which seems to be commodities
0: yeah i think the weak signal thing is a spot on because if you look at where profits come from they don't come from 70 percent of the bets no. right they come no the- no and,
1: and and that's the thing they come from a relatively small number of the bets that are happening but you just don't know where you've just got to be ready and and that's another advantage of trend As you get that huge diversification. It's actually incredibly cheap to run it on 100, 200 markets. And then as long as you're managing your profits and your risks on those 180, 190, which aren't making money, it's worth them being there.
0: You, you mentioned speeds. We've talked about it in different episodes. I mean, what's an investor to do? Should they pick one speed? Is it based on portfolio utility? Should you diversify? What's the right answer if there is one?
1: So generally, when I've approached this, I've always aimed to build a diverse set of speeds. And, you know, different speeds can have different utility. People often say, oh, let's go with very, very fast managers because they get onto trends quicker. The problem is the very, very fast end, and I'm talking, you know, less than five-day holding period, it's probably the hardest to trade. You need to have huge investment in, in, um, again, execution infrastructure. Of which I'm aware of very, very few people who really, really have that. I mean, maybe one or two. um, So it's a hard, it's attractive, but it's a hard space to go. At the other end, you can have, you know, maybe just slightly fast managers who get onto trends quicker. Um, They can, you know, if there's a modern sudden market event, they can get onto those trends. They can generate profits. but then they risk the risk of being whipsawed if those trends reverse, and we saw that a lot in the mid two thousand and tens. And then you have the the slower guys who just plod along, you know, any sort of market volatility. They just kind of you know trade through it very gently like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, if there's a long prolonged trend, they'll get onto it. So, so there's different utilities for different types of managers. There are times when you want to be quick. There are times when you want to be slow. Um, there are times when you want to be medium speed, we didn't talk about those. But like this theme I've already mentioned, you don't know which is going to be working best at any point in time. So this idea of having some sort of diversification across managers is important. And it's interesting if I speak to different managers that they often have a preference for one type of you know right. type of speed. So some prefer to go fast, some prefer to stay slow. And It's not like it's something they change week by week. They have been doing this for years or even decades as well. So I think there's benefit in different speeds, building a portfolio and putting them together.
0: So that raises an interesting question for me. You know, Cam Harvey on a different episode mentioned the concept of dynamic speed modulation. And the idea is to adjust the speed of trend depending on the economic or market environment. In other words... Other factors feed into what speed you're choosing. You might be faster in a certain environment. You might be slower in another environment. As a practical matter, have you seen funds doing this? Do you have any thoughts on it?
1: I've seen, I think, two funds try to research it and gave up in the end. And again, these are smart people. there's very smart people. But I think one of the reasons it's so hard to do is, you know, ultimately... Where you can economic environments or cycles, there are so few to actually build any sort of model upon there. So you always got this risk of again overfitting or building something which is just not going to make money going forward. So I've not seen many people try to do it. I've seen people try to adapt, you know, the strength of, you know, their um, their allocation to markets depending on you know how strong they think a market's trending, but not really dynamically varying speed so much. The only other time I've seen some people do it, something similar, was the concept of trip, uh, flipping between trend following and counter trend. So when markets are trending, go trend; when the range bound, go counter trend and mean reversion. Um, that ended up being actually quite a disaster for them. Um, it's it's just and actually it wasn't the timing mechanism itself it's it's just because they became so obvious what they were doing in the market that people started to pick them off um so I'm not a fan of the concept at all and you know it's kind of one of those holy grails right you know if we could predict what's going to work then we'd all be well we wouldn't be sat here for example so it's i think it's it's something i'm a little bit skeptical of on and i think if it was easy a lot of people would be doing it whether you know, new techniques, machine learning comes in and helps. That's interesting to think about. Um, but I think it's incredibly hard to do in, in practice.
0: Yeah, it has a feel that I'm looking for some extra alpha and a backfitted strategy. But on the other hand, maybe the research has some interesting points to it. I guess for me, the, the thought was a bit, you kind of rely on the track record of trend and how it normally runs. And if we introduce this Really variable speed approach, then my thought process of this kind of purpose-driven investment I have in trend gets kind of unwound.
1: But there's always a thing in any hedge fund manager. What we really hate as allocators surprises. Yeah, and you know my my favorite comment from a I think it was a Tel Protect manager. It was the wrong type of market crash. (laughs) <laughs> and it kind of goes the same with with trend. Oh, it was the wrong type of trend. So you know, if you're expecting a manager in your portfolio that we expect this type of performance, you know, okay, it's a it's a very range-bound market. We don't expect them to do well, or it's a very um, you know volatile market. We expect them to go into trends, or now we decide to go slow. Right. You know, that that's just a horrible position to be in as an allocator.
0: You touched a little bit on carry strategies. What are trend managers doing in carry strategies exactly?
1: I've seen it used in two ways. Um, Some managers use carry-like signals to moderate their trend signals. So actually, this isn't going to trend. There's no carry there, so why even think it's going to trend? Um, And I think that's actually quite a clever way to do it. I've also seen other managers that there are periods when trend doesn't work. So let's add in some diversifying signals. So they add in, you know, more systematic macro-like signals, or they add in some short-term trading-like signals, which, if you go do the analysis, are generally very diversifying to trend. So there's often a drive there to diversify their portfolio and, you know, hopefully building a better overall utility for the client. The challenge comes is when they all of a sudden move from maybe having, you know, 20 percent in non-trend strategies to having 30 percent 40 percent 50 percent what are you then getting and one of the things i've often spoken about with those macro or short-term strategies is again they're very easy to do but they're also very easy to get wrong and we've often seen that the managers who struggle are those who have moved so far away from trend to diversify that actually you know, you're ending up with something else altogether, and worse, those signals actually detract value from the overall portfolio.
0: Yeah, I think we saw a couple of big name managers move heavily into carry during the Fed put years, right, when yeah. trends were suppressed, and, yeah. and they were loud about it, <laughs> yeah. less loud probably this year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think I know the answer to my question, but I assume that means you want more than one trend manager in your portfolio? And given that, how many? 100? 500?
1: Um, you don't need that many. Um, they are highly correlated. Um, and on the whole, I did do a quick check. You know, most trend managers, point seven to point eight correlated. The answer is not one. And if for no other reason, even the very best managers have periods of underperformance, or the way they've set up their models, their speeds, their sector allocations is you know, less than perfect for that particular choice of markets. So how many, I mean, um, typically when we build baskets of man- uh, trend managers, it's three to four, certainly no more than six or seven. You could maybe get away with a couple, but if you're just doing one, then that, you know, as a portfolio context, that can be a little bit risky. And, you know, because the, you know, sometimes the markets just aren't suitable for the way you trade there. So, and, um, if you there are certainly other people who will have lots and lots and lots and lots, the problem is if even if you've got managers which are highly correlated, if you put lots of managers together, you end up with a portfolio with anemic level of vol um now and there are ways around that using managed accounts using you know clever use of margin movement, but that's a very very sophisticated set of that you need, so probably not something for this podcast um but you know. Definitely not one, but definitely not eight, nine, ten. So somewhere in there, depending exactly what you want to produce.
0: And you had some dead years in the two thousand tens. Yep. So are you supposed to be tactical? You know, you're you're a fund of funds manager. You're supposed to time all this.
1: Timing these things. So even the two thousand tens, there were some dead years, but there's the occasional year where ooh, well done! You've just popped up 15%, 20 percent. You didn't really know at the start of the year which year it's going to be. So I think there can be things around, you know, first of all, I think it's actually a pretty permanent allocation. You've got to accept it in your portfolio. It's got to be part of it. But there may be times when you want to reduce it because you think there are better opportunities elsewhere. And I think that's part of the the game here, which is, you know, in any portfolio, where's the opportunity? And there are times and other strategies where, it's easier to spot the opportunity. Our oh, yields are looking great, let's do something in credit. Um, there's a lot of m um, a activity, let's go into event managers, that's where we want the, the money. Um, there are times when it's less certain and you may want that protection that managed futures or trend managers can provide there. There have been times where some of the best periods for trend managers have come from really unexpected events. So you probably want a little bit in there. There may be times when you want more, there may be times when you want a little bit less. But I think if you're going to have it in your portfolio, you should just have it in your portfolio. And one of the things I, I think I always urge clients to do is that if you look at it in isolation, there are times when it may not look the most attractive strategy. But you've put it in your portfolio for a reason. So judge it on the portfolio, overall portfolio utility, as opposed to what this single line item's doing there. And I think if you don't do that, then it's easy. Oh, we must redeem them. They're not done well, we'll redeem. But then you've probably lost one of your most powerful diversifying strategies, which at some point you're going to need. So I tend to advise, leave it in there. Don't play around with it too much. But there may be times, and probably more in hedge fund portfolios, where you may want to move up and down a little bit. But that's about other opportunities as opposed to trying to time the strategy.
0: So given it's a permanent allocation in your mind, What kind of return expectations should investors have? You know, 2022 has been a great year and other years have been kind of flattish. Like what are the return expectations for them?
1: You know, this strategy has been around for a very long time. Um, You know, think early 2000s was great, 2004 harder, 2008, 2009 more powerful, mid 2010s harder. And then all of a sudden trend is really back in vogue given the inflationary times one of the powers of trend and the trend managers is the you know the ability to adapt that point i made early on about evolution it's it's important so i think you know i'm not going to make a return prediction you should see that because i don't think you can but i think as a strategy it has been robust and it remains robust maybe the slight nuance we have these days is you know there are certainly you know more risk premium like implementations of trend, Everyone to use that phrase, where you know, maybe in tougher markets you won't get as much return, but if they're in your portfolio to provide some sort of crisis risk offset allocation, they have a real utility. And that's what we've seen, is that even the relatively simple implementations of trend, they've done tremendously well over the past couple of years. If you're looking for a more alpha-like implementation, going into the alternative markets, or you know other types of techniques to to diversify away, to diversify your trend allocation, then I think actually, you know, you can be confident there's an incredibly robust return stream there. So, I think, you know, the point I made earlier on about evolution is really, really important that managers have evolved, they continue to evolve. I don't know where they're going next. I think there's lots of interesting things they can look at. And as long as you are in managers where they have that research process evolution, then I think there's a real part in your portfolio for trend, uh, which can be very, very powerful. There'll be tough years, there'll be better years, but year after year, time after time, trend has proved itself out to be a really very, very powerful strategy to have in your portfolio.
0: So, if I look at a crisis risk offset plan or a pension, you know, what's the right amount of trend? Is there an answer?
1: I think you need quite a lot, actually. And the way to think about it is, if you've got a multi-billion-dollar portfolio, you know, you're not going to get away protecting your multi-billion-dollar portfolio with a hundred million of trend. You're going to need a lot of it. And I think if you look at those signals that when you get a market crisis, I do think actually trend is one of the most reliable things you can have in there. You know, so a lot. I mean, I've seen 30%, 40%, 56% in trend. It's a substantial allocation with other things around it, you know, to react in different speeds and different ways. But it's got to, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you're in it or you're not. And if you're believing in risk offset, you are going to have to be prepared to allocate a substantial amount of trend, which is what we generally see.
0: So it sounds like this year, investors are really catching up to the value of trend in their portfolio, especially given its multi-asset framework. Do you think this is going to be part of a broader shift to trend and systematic strategies going forward, given the instability of sixty forty?
1: 40 There's definitely been a shift I've noticed over the years. Again, when I started out, you know, it was all about the hedge fund superstar hedge fund manager. And if you look across society, there's been uh, you know societal effect or drift towards technology. You know, you know, wherever you look, there's some sort of technology being used or you know, sophisticated um, algorithms to help you tell you what to do. So, I think quant managers are just so much more accepted than they were. 10, 15, 20 years ago that So I think that's definitely been a shift. And I definitely see people more interested in understanding the quant space, how it can help. And I think there's then an, another element as well about that shift towards systematic which. Uh, there are some areas which maybe even five years ago you would not contemplate doing in a quant fashion. Credit, structured credit, for example. that As those data sets become more prevalent and actually being... You know capable being processed, it is not surprising to see more people or more managers move into some of those spaces which historically would have been the preserve of the discretionary manager because there's only discretionary manager who had the insight, access to the data, access to the knowledge. So, I do think it's going to be a longer term trend, and we're already seeing it again. I mentioned credit as one space where people are moving into that. Quant managers are starting to move into a space which was historically. Most definitely, the domain of the discretionary manager
0: so when do you fire a manager?
1: sometimes a manager does something which is so egregiously bad it's obvious, for example, you know you know there are things like they've just lost a lot of money in a market they should not be trading um or they've been you know dishonest or they've tried to hide what they're doing away from you so that you know the, these are the type of things you when you see it. You know it. And I think that goes to any hedge fund strategy, but I have seen it in managed futures as well. More generally though, you know, firing a manager is hard because sometimes there is an opportunity cost associated with it. Be that you've got good capacity, you've got good fees, or sometimes if you leave a very good manager, they may not want you back in the future if you leave them the wrong point. So there's a really nuanced decision to be made around, you know, what you do. And I think You know, one of the things I said about, um, you know, what makes a good manager transparency. So when a manager is in a bit of difficulty, it could well just be that the speed they're trading at is not suited to the markets. They could have allocations which are more biased to one sector, which is something you wanted. It could well be that part of the signals or strategies have failed for, you know, the market's caught up with them. They understand what's going on. They've been manipulated. That happens, by the way. So one of the key things that transparency is how can they explain to you what's going on? Are they open? Are they capable of demonstrating that they can evolve a process, how quickly they're going to do it, how committed they are to do it? And I think if you get that balance, then actually it's worth giving people a bit more time. The flip side is if they try and obfuscate, if they try and hide things away from you, if they try and blatantly lie, then just get out that's it. But there's definitely a period where try and understand, give them some space, because of they're good, one of the things you can do, better fees, better terms, better access, you name it, and give them a little bit of time.
0: All right, great. Well, with that, I think we'll, we'll stop there. Um, thanks a lot for your perspectives. It's been great.
1: Thank you, Peter. It's been wonderful.